bow our heads and invite the Lord in our midst. Almighty God, we're so thankful that beyond this facade of what we can see that is temporary, there exists the eternal. The things that we see, we know, are corrupt and corruptible and will soon pass away. We're so thankful that we have an anchor that goes beyond this veil of the things we can see to the things we can't see, the things that will endure forever, the things that are true and right and good, the things that are rooted in you, our Lord and Savior. This afternoon, as we would look into your word, we, we ask for a glimpse into those things that are true, the anchor. Well, we know that we do go through storms in this life. And we pray for a vision and inspiration where we could know more about you, who you are, and we can be encouraged to hang on to that anchor, that we can change our lives, that you can change our lives by your power. Speak to us, we pray, through your living spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This afternoon, I feel led to read from the epistle that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Galatians, the second chapter. Let's begin reading from the 16th verse, Galatians chapter 2, beginning to read from the 16th verse to the end. <clears throat> Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But... If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. And nevertheless I live, Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, 
Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. People throughout all time struggle. They struggle with a sense of moral failure, a sense that there's a gap between what is and what ought, who they are and who they should be. They find all kinds of ways to try to deal with that gap. One way is to kind of define it away. Let's, let's change the laws. Let's change society's expectations so that the way I live is what is expected and therefore I no longer feel guilty. That doesn't work that well. Even though, for example, abortion has been legal for you know, some 40 years now, you can talk to those who've gone through that experience and, and, and um, the burden that they carry inside of them that causes severe trauma, depression, and, and they struggle with. We can, we can define and make it socially acceptable all we like, but in our size, in ourselves, we know what is right. So that doesn't work. One can merely try to escape and distract ourselves and, and, and use things. Um, you know, extreme case might be substance abuse, but there's lots of people who use shopping, the internet, uh, uh, many socially acceptable forms of distraction. In fact, uh, people are finding that the internet is, is very good at that, um, at, at distraction. At, at below a certain age group, uh, as soon as there is any moment of quiet, the first thing that a young person will do will reach for their phone. That's what the, the studies show. And it's very effective. You always have something to fill your mind and hopefully distract you from the things that might bother you. But we all know that surface when this, the high from the purchase or from the the like, or from, you know, reading something new, when, when that dissipates, we're still left with ourselves. We have to deal with it. And so often that can drive. In fact, they found that, you know, addictive behavior, it used to be limited to substances, but now they, they've redefined it to addictive behavior as really driven by a psychological need not just by the fact that your you know, pleasure, you get a hit of dopamine when you do these behaviors or you ingest the substance. It's really, we feel bad. We want to feel good. And when we have the hit of dopamine, we feel better. But it doesn't work very well. You're, it takes more and more to get the same feeling and pretty soon you're feeling lousy because your brain isn't producing the dopamine and so you're actually in a far worse position. Another form, which is what this chapter, in fact, this whole book is addressing, is that people can make themselves feel better by um, 
following a certain code by doing certain things and, and being, and, and typically, you know, it's I'm better than person X, Y, and Z, or even we might come to the absolute, the relative is an easy one. It's always easy to find somebody that you can grade yourself in comparison and feel better because at least I'm better than X. But then we can even come to the absolute standard that God has placed in the law of a set of rights and wrongs, and, and we can try to, to, to measure self against that, and it's difficult. No one has accomplished that save one. So we often cheat. We, we, we kind of subset the list. We say these laws are more important than those laws. We, we find the laws that are visible that are kind of easier because we're kind of socially accountable for that. We might miss the things about thou shall not covet or we focus on thou shall not kill, right? Because the covet, that's a hard one. That's, that's one inside of us. But even if we could keep this law, we read here together, if while we seek to be justified, um, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So this idea that if I'm good enough person, if my good works outweigh the bad, then I will feel better about myself, and I will no longer have to deal with this sense of failure. Really, really eats away at you, the sense of failure, that I'm not good enough, that I have missed the mark, I have not achieved what I was supposed to, I'm not measuring up. Because even if I do a lot of good, how much good outweighs the bad we've all done? And according to the Bible, there really is no compensation. It's not, there's no cancellation it says if you've committed one thing, that in the Hebrews it tells us if you've broken one part of the law, you've, you're guilty as a lawbreaker. And so we come to this solution. And it's a beautiful solution. It is a solution that doesn't have all the negative baggage that each one of these strategies I've enumerated have. It doesn't bring you into negative patterns of addiction where you're striving to, to make yourself feel good with things that are becoming less and less effective. It doesn't have the negative baggage of, 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 of striving for perfection even though you can't. And you build a deeper and deeper sense of your own imperfection as you see it highlighted against the standard. It doesn't have the sense that you're lying to yourself because it's an embracing truth. God knows. God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the starting point. It's the end of verse 20, but it's the starting point. He loves you. And as such, he gave himself for you in such a way, it's like an exchange program. It's a different way of explaining it. When I was uh, in high school, we had an exchange program where I got to change places with somebody in Quebec. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really that much of a 
the difference in class. I mean, to change places between, you know, the, the, the son of an assembly line worker versus the son of a cow farmer in Quebec, you know, it's pretty much the same class level. But can you imagine? And we're, this is something we're going to be looking into in this coming weeks. Next week, we'll have the, the Sunday school singing about Christmas. Can you imagine the exchange program between, you know, the, some prince and who lives in the lap of luxury, and he has to come and take your place and go through your routine. But what, what Jesus did was, was he exchanged far more than a temporary two-week of having to go through the motions of living your life and then go back to the luxury of heaven. What Jesus did, he, he, the scripture says that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, some people like to, to, to take that as, as sort of a positional change, you know, that, that um, you know, now God sees us through the righteousness and it's kind of like a whitewash. It's, an, it's something that's kind of on the outside of me, but doesn't change who I really am on the inside. But Jesus just didn't take my sin on the outside of him. He took it on and it became him. He became sin. He became my sin and your sin. As he hung on the cross, we know that, you know, the soul that sinneth shall die. And it was, he became my sin. And that was the death sentence. As well as the, the you know, thing that cut him off from his intimate fellowship with the Father that he's had from eternity past. The thing that made him feel abandoned as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the thing that made him feel crushed in the garden as, as he sweat drops of blood because he felt the pressure of my sin on him. He became sin. But if that's true, what about the other part of the exchange? We all believe, we all believe that Jesus came into this world, that he took on flesh as a babe. He took on our human form. We believe that he went to the cross. I believe most of you believe that he died in your place on the cross. What about the other part of the exchange? He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's not an exterior. That's an thorough interior change. This verse talks about that exchanged life. And, and it's something, it's not that, that I feel I have yet to fully experience and fully implement in my life. It's something that I feel there is such promise and potential here that I look forward to truly being able to say these words without reservation. This is something I'm striving for, something I feel I'm growing in, but I do not feel I have yet attained. Look to me at the promise that we're given here in Galatians 2.20. The qualifier the prerequisite on my part, 
I am crucified with Christ. He was crucified in my place. We understand that. As part of this exchange, I too am crucified. Not on a physical cross, not uh, you know, in the physical agony, but what did Jesus have to do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, but thy will be done. He, he surrendered his will. Even though he knew God was going to ask him to do some things that were very painful and something that he would find very difficult. He said, if it be possible that this cup be passed from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Even so, I need to get to that point where when I say, Lord, I take you as my Lord, that means the one in authority who has absolute direction over me, I'm willing to do what you wish. I'm willing to let my will die and do what you direct. Then I become, as Romans 12 says, you know, a living sacrifice. Sometimes it's harder to be a living sacrifice than a dead sacrifice. Sometimes it's almost easier, you know, just, I just want to die and not deal with things anymore. Sometimes you feel like that. But to be a living sacrifice, that means you need to continue in the attitude of submission. We talked a little bit about that in gender roles this morning, but this idea of submission is not simply for one gender. All of us need to come into submission to the ultimate authority of God. And it's very personal. It's very personal for me to say, God, I'm willing to do what you say. So even though I've died spiritually, I'm still alive physically. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This is the exchange. The exchange that even as my sin was, a lot, was alive in him and, and was powerful enough to cause the Lord of the universe to, to die in agony on my behalf. His righteousness is just as real inside of me. As I surrender and die to myself, I allow him to live through me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm still alive in this world, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll probably be talking about this a lot. So bear with me. You may hear it repeated more than once. But I know God's trying to teach me something. You've probably, many of you heard of our story of, you know, how we went through some mishaps this past um, week in Florida where I feel God was testing me. Whether this is theory or reality. Whether this is just a nice verse that my wife has put into calligraphy because it's my favorite verse and I've put on the wall in my office and that I can look at her beautiful handiwork and say, isn't that pretty? Or is this something that when bad things happen in one after the other, 
do I really believe this? That my life isn't dictated by the bad, my circumstances, but by Christ living in me. That his love in me can even love the thief who is just, you know, causing me severe damage. That the love in me is going to make sure that I'm not going to turn on my wife and we can start pointing our fingers at each other and say, if you hadn't, if I hadn't, if you do, what if, and could have, should have, would have, right? And allow Satan to gain the upper hand because that's what he wants to happen. You see, one thing I learned in Florida, God was speaking to me ahead of time and then he gave me the test and I'm still struggling with trying to pass this test. So be patient with me. But one thing he taught me ahead of time is that when something happens, there are two wills, okay? Satan has a plan and God has a plan. So when I was robbed in Florida, Satan had a plan. His plan was that I would get upset that I would get frustrated, that I would get overwhelmed, that I would start to be resentful towards everybody, you know, not only the thief, but the police and the, the consulate and the bureaucracy and, like I said, you know, the temptation, you get frustrated with the people that you love. And, you know, he had a plan. And the plan had a lot to do with how I would react and how I would think about this. God had a plan. But the very same circumstances, the, the event, you know, and uh, Uncle Al, uh, Brother Allen's uh, terminology, the event is the same that happens to us. Now, what's God's plan? See, if I think about worst-case scenarios and I get stressed out about worst-case scenarios, I'm thinking Satan thoughts for him, right? I'm on his side. I'm, I'm, I'm playing his version of how the chessboard should go from here. If I'm thinking about what God wants me to, to happen from this, and I see, well, he wants me to respond in love uh, and to, to overcome evil with good and to, um, you know, to, to actually be joyful. I mean, this morning we heard that we should be pray for all men and be thankful for all men. That means I need to be thankful for the thief who smashed the window and stole you know, my wife's purse and my backpack. I should be thankful for him. That's tall order at the time, right? Because God allowed that for me to see if I can grow and live up to these words. And that's not something I can do. It's not like, okay, Edmund, try a little harder, be more loving, be patient. That's following the law. That's, that's me pushing myself to be a better person. That's not going to work. We've been there. We've done that. We've tried that, right? It's when I die to myself, when I'm crucified with Christ, that he can actually live in me. And there's this exchange where he is the one, because he loved me, I can love all those around me who are actually causing me pain right now. Just like because he was on the cross and I was spitting in his face and mocking him and saying, I don't need what you're giving me. I want to live my little life here. And I 
want to put you on the back burner. He, I was doing that to him, causing him pain, and he loved me. And so I can do that for others. Because he is in me, I can be joyful because I know he's got a good purpose. Even in something that looks bad in the moment, he's got a purpose that will glorify him through me. And that's actually the ultimate. If I can glorify God in my reactions and in my choices, I feel like I'm fulfilling God's purpose for which I'm created. And so in your life, you will be tested probably in this coming week, maybe before this day is out, maybe before the hour is up, you will be tested. You will have events happen to you. You can confront those events in your own power. Even in the power that I just came from church, I know the right thing to do, I'm going to try harder. Or you can be crucified with Christ. You can just give up your rights and your plan and let Christ live through you. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. There's this exchange where Christ is on the inside. Not on the outside, not on the throne judging me. Not even on the cross dying for me but on the inside living through me in that I can actually have a joy and peace in the moment because what he, who he is eclipses my problems. What he has done eclipses my problems. I can focus on the problems and get lost in them. It's very easy to do because we're all creatures that live in this world and what we touch and see seems very real to us. And then there's what we imagine and we think and as we project and we think about people's motivation and why they're doing this to me and what would be fair and we can really go far afield on that, right? Or we can see them through Christ living in me, the Christ that loves these people, sees them as lost. We can see who the real enemy is. And this spiritual battle we can take to a whole new level where we're not just being defensive and say, eh, Satan, you tried, but you're not going to win this time. We can go on the offensive. When you let Christ live in you and you respond in a way that shows a supernatural peace and joy and love in the face of this, you're, you're not, Satan didn't just lose, he, he didn't just lose his gambit. He was hoping to get you, and he, he didn't. You're now making him look bad. You're now exposing him as a fraud. You are now showing that there is a higher power, and he just set you up to make him look bad and make God look good. And you are taking revenge, as 2 Corinthians 7 would say, when we repent in the right way. And as other places talk about the armor, you're actually able to expose and make an attack, if you will, on the true enemy of your soul. But this is not something we do through our own power. It's through this exchange life. And this exchange life doesn't happen in parts. You can't say, okay, God, I've given you my Sundays. I'm giving you 
my home life, but not my work life. Or I'm giving you everything but this special part of my life I want to keep myself. No. Jesus didn't die for you in part. He died for you completely. And in exchange, he wants all of you. And as you surrender all of them, including your right to see someone pay for the pain they've caused you, including your right to get upset about the bad things that happened to you, your right to hang on to hurts, your right to uh, expect good things, when you give that all up, because you're dead, and Christ is living in you, then his power can pour through you. And you can live a supernatural life that will be victorious and put to flight and put to shame the true enemy of all of our souls. There's so much more here. I wish I could illustrate better for you, but I, I fail. But I promise you, if you look into this, there is power through the person of Christ living inside of you. And I challenge you to look into that and allow that to work out in reality. May God bless these few words. The exchange. My dear friend, what an offer to trade the things you cannot keep, the things you don't want to keep, their failures, the things that make you ashamed for his glorious righteousness. And not just to be able to go to heaven, but as we've been challenged this afternoon in order to experience his life through you, his victory, even now. A joy and a peace that you know, my wife was asking me, how is this verse possible where it says that Satan, you know, you cannot sin and neither can the evil one touch you. How is that possible? We can see that bad things happen to us, right? Where is this verse true that the evil one cannot touch you? It is true because he cannot get to the things that matter. He cannot touch our identity in Christ. He cannot touch our security in Christ. He cannot touch our hope in Christ. He cannot touch the things that matter. The things he takes are temporary. But the things that matter, he cannot touch. And we can have that security. In conclusion, I want to just read the words to this one song. His heart was broken Mine was mended. He became sin. Now I am clean. The cross he carried bore my burden. The nails that held him set me free. His scars of suffering brought me healing. He spilled his blood to fill my soul. His crown of thorns made me royalty. His sorrow gave me joy untold. He was despised and rejected, stripped of his garments and oppressed. 
I am loved and accepted, and I wear a robe of righteousness. His life for mine. His life for mine. How could it ever be that he would die, God's son would die, to save a wretch like me? What love divine. He gave his life for mine. With that, we conclude this afternoon's service.